Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, it started as an innocuous Twitter survey, but then it just blew up. Not long ago, church health guru Tom Rayner from Lifeway Church Resources asked his Twitter followers to share real-life examples of silly church fights. After receiving way more than he ever expected, Rayner picked his top 25 favorite stories and listed them in no particular order on his blog. Here's just a few that made the list. Uh, Number one on the list, again, not in any particular order, one church had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Another had a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer, which led me to wonder who was taking pictures of Jesus. But... Uh, Number 14 on the list was uh, uh, two different churches reported fights over coffee. No surprise there. One replaced Folgers with a stronger Starbucks brand, while the other just moved to a stronger blend of the brand they were using. And unfortunately, members left the latter church because of the change. Uh, Number 18, somebody tweeted in to uh, Tom Rainer that, Their church supposedly had a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing because luck contradicts the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You know, it's stories like this that probably inspired the poet to write, To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will sure be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. It's no secret that local churches have their share of nasty conflicts. So it would be no surprise to find that the church we've been studying for the last several weeks in Philippi would have a conflict that needs resolved, too. And that's what the verses we're going to look at today are talking about as we continue our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 4 and take out the sermon outline that's in the worship folder you received when you came in today. Philippians chapter 4. The theme verse for this series that sort of sums up everything that Paul is trying to say in this letter is Philippians 4.4, in which he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's in this verse that the Apostle Paul tells us and the Philippians that joy bless, excuse me, based on our circumstances is quenchable. It won't last. And that's true, but we seem to be hardwired to base our joy on circumstances. However, Paul then, what he says throughout this letter is that joy rooted in our relationship with the Lord, thus rejoice in the Lord, 
is unstoppable. It's unquenchable. And you know as well as I do that it's harder to rejoice in the Lord when we have unresolved conflict with other believers. It sucks the joy out of us. It, it worries us. It causes us to be sleepless and to fret and, and to just have this uneasiness that's not in our stomach. And so our big idea for today is this. Church conflict is inevitable, but the joy of making peace is possible. Church conflict is inevitable, but the joy of making peace is possible. Philippians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Philippi while he was in Rome under house arrest for preaching the gospel. One very important issue that he wanted to address with this church was an escalating conflict between two female leaders in the church. This should encourage us, and I don't want you to miss this, because I think a lot of Christians have sort of a, um, how shall I say it, a, a, a more positive whitewashed view of the early church than they should, thinking, oh, if we could just go back to the days of Acts, or if we could just go back to the first century, man, things would be so much better. Shouldn't we be a first century church? Well, not exactly. You see, because this, this should encourage us because it reveals that no church... No church is exempt from having relational conflict. Even a church like the one in Philippi that was near and dear to the Apostle Paul's heart. In fact, did you know that just about every church or audience in the New Testament either had internal conflict, received exhortation to protect their unity, or both? I actually didn't know this until I was preparing for this message, and I started to thumb through the New Testament and go from one passage to the next. And uh, check this out. In the book of Acts, there are references to conflicts that took place. Uh, in the book of Romans, so the church in Rome had conflict and disagreements, which Paul had to address in Romans 14. Corinth... Um, famously known in my mind as the church that got not only two letters, at least, some scholars think Corinth got four letters total from Paul, but the church in Corinth also got two very long letters from Paul. If that doesn't say something about where they were and how much help they needed. But in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 11, then 2 Corinthians 13, Paul references conflict. Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, uh, Thessalonica. And then James, the audience he was writing to, in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he calls out, actually 1 through 12, excuse me, he calls out the source of conflict and he challenges his audience to draw near to the Lord and examine their own selfishness. So although it's encouraging to know that the New Testament churches had arguments, fights, it does sort of lead to the question, though, why, why does this happen? Why, why do these conflicts happen? Why, why can't we just get along, right? 
Well, I was thinking about this myself, and so I, I, I thought before we dive into the text for today, I wanted to try and answer this question. Why is there conflict in churches? So here's, here's a quick few reasons for you. First of all, churches contain saints who have been infected by an inherited sin nature. All of us are born sinners, separated from God, having inherited a sin nature from our parents. This means we all sin against others, and we will be sinned against by others. Sometimes we'll do it intentionally, sometimes we'll do it unintentionally. Of course, Psalm 51, verse 5, and Romans 3.23 are good references for this. Another reason is that some saints give in to self-centeredness and pride. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as I referenced a few minutes ago, talks about this. They may want the focus of the church to be about them, or maybe they want their favorite ministry to get more attention, or maybe even worse, and I've seen this, they want to control the church. Some saints reject God's word and spiritual authority. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, and 3 John talk about this. There are some professing believers, and I think it's questionable whether they are born again when they reject God's word and they reject spiritual authority, but they, they want to have things the way they are in the church or they just want to ruin the church and see it burn. Also, there's an outside force at work. Satan wants to weaken churches by dividing them. Uh, John 13, verse 2, and Acts chapter 5, verse 3 talk about this. Satan's influence does not acquit us of our culpability, but he does try and push the right buttons to get saints to fight. Now, I should say this before I move on, that some conflict is unavoidable, and some conflict can be good, actually, especially if it's conflict over truth. Jesus warned us to expect conflict over the truth when he said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. And what Jesus was saying there is that his message of repentance and faith in him being necessary for salvation and forgiveness, that it would divide families, it would divide communities, because there would be some who accept Jesus' message, and there would be others that reject it. And this would cause friction. And so, so he's trying to explain to his disciples, hey, it's, things aren't going to be hunky-dory until I come back for good and establish my kingdom in the future. Uh, it's going to be hard, because my message, the gospel message, creates conflict. Well, as you can see, it shouldn't alarm us, discourage us, or disappoint us when there is conflict in a church. What is alarming or disappointing, to me at least, is when churches don't resolve conflict. And that's what Paul wanted to avoid in Philippi. And so with that, if you would look at Philippians chapter 4, as I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and entreat Sintuche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who 
have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, let me explain what's going on here and make a few comments about these three verses because there's a lot happening here that he's talking about. First of all, the two names, these two women, Eodia and Setuhe. It's a very hard, two very hard Greek words to pronounce, but notice how Paul speaks to each woman individually by putting the verb entreat before each of their names. But he doesn't take sides either. The apostle giving mention to this strongly suggests that their disagreement had intensified to the point of forcing other members in the church to take sides. And you know as well as I do, you can feel that kind of tension in the room in a worship service. This not only makes sense, though, in light of Paul's calls for church unity earlier in the letter, but it also fits with the precedent that he has set in his other writings, in that Paul usually only names people who are worthy of public commendation or public censure. In other words, Paul wouldn't have named them if the problem wasn't serious. He just usually doesn't do that. Back in those days, it was common for apostolic letters to be read out loud to the congregation after they were received. And I was thinking about this last night. Can you imagine being in the room when Pastor Epaphroditus read this letter from Paul and your name comes up as a special mention? You know, so like, and... Uh, Next, uh, the apostle says, uh, therefore, we should, you know, he loves us and, he, and we're his joy and crown and that, uh, he wants to stand firm in the Lord and he loves us again. And then, uh, oh, by the way, um, uh, Doretha and Jen, he wants you all to get things worked out between the two of you. Or, or you know, Mark and John, he wants you guys to stop fighting with each other and make up. I mean, if you were one of those people in conflict, wouldn't you be like... I mean, it just, uh, he just really ramped up the public pressure on these two women to work it out. But then what's interesting is that he goes even further. Notice in verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Notice how Paul, he didn't think these two women could work it out anymore on their own. It's, I think it's assumed that they had already tried, or maybe the conflict had been brewing and brewing, and just it was boiling over now into the rest of the church. And so it was getting to the point where a mediator was needed. Well, who is this person that Paul appointed as mediator? Well, depending on your Bible translation, you may see true companion, true partner, or true fellow worker. Uh, the, the Greek text uses a rare word here that literally means true yoke fellow. Now, there's been a lot of speculation by evangelical commentators as to who this true companion guy is, and there's no agreement there's theories ranging from Epaphroditus to Timothy to Silas to Luke. Uh, 
to maybe Paul had a wife, to on and on and on. Lots of theories. But let me just say for the sake of time, I personally think it's most likely he was referring to Timothy. Because he had already elevated Timothy as his son in the faith, as someone who was worthy of respect, and someone who would care for them in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. And also, uh, Timothy was, well, it was common for Paul to dispatch his assistants to go to a church when something needed to be fixed. And Timothy was his most trusted protege or assistant. So notice then, he's gentle with entreat. The word entreat in verse 2 is, it's sort of a gentle urging is what it means, or encouragement. But what's fascinating is that he uses a stronger, much stronger word in verse 3 when talking to the true companion. Uh, the word help doesn't really convey in the English what's, what, what he's really saying. It's the, you might want to jot this down. It's fascinating to me, at least, um, and I hope it is to you. Uh, the word help actually comes from the Greek word that means to seize, apprehend as a prisoner, or to take hold of together against a person's will. So, so he's telling this true companion, whom I think is Timothy, I want you to help these two women against their will to get this worked out. It reminds me of a, a, a bit by my favorite comedian, Brian Regan, um, that he did not long ago about the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, he was on tonight's show a while back, and he said... Uh, uh, you know, I heard there's still fighting going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and that's been going on for a while. I mean, they've tried everything from violence to peace talks, but you know one thing they haven't tried yet is a good dad. They need a good dad to come in and have a talk with them. And so Regan goes on to say, a good dad can solve any problem in 30 seconds. He just would walk into the room. You come over here, and you come over here. What's going on here? Oh, he started it? No, he started it. I don't care who started it. I'm going to finish it. Here's what we're going to do. You're going you're to learn to share. Well, it's my land. No, it's my land. Well, how about if it's neither of yours land, okay? Um, so so here's, here's what we're going to do. You're going you're gonna to say you're sorry to each other. You're going to hug and make up, and we're going to have a great day tomorrow, so get to bed. You know, that's like dads would do. At least that's what I do in my house. So uh, I was thinking, Paul seems to be appointing this true companion, Timothy, sort of like, I want you to go in there, bring the two women together, and say, what's going on here? What are you fighting? Get over here. What, what's going Okay, you're going to say you're sorry. You're going to grant forgiveness. You're going to hug. We're going to make up, and we're going to have a great day at church tomorrow, man. It's because adults sometimes need a good dad talk. Adults, right? So the apostle ends verse 3, mentioning why these two women were special to him. They had served with him on the mission field, and their names are in the book of life. This is a phrase from the book of Revelation that refers to those who have eternal life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, although Paul makes it clear in these three verses that we need to resolve conflict in our church, he doesn't get into why or how. However, there are other passages in the New Testament that do answer these questions. And so I thought it would be helpful to spend the rest of our time looking at three main passages that have to do with biblical peacemaking. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And don't worry, those blanks on your handout, they're going to get filled in real soon and real fast. So, so we're coming. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. Remember, I mentioned earlier, the church in Corinth had their share of actually plenty of conflict. It's so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Next, uh, here's, here's the question that I think he's answering here. Why do we need to resolve conflict in the church? Why? Well, number one on your outline is this. Because it clarifies the gospel vividly. It, re- it clarifies the gospel vividly. Paul says in verse 18 that the Lord gave his church the ministry of reconciliation. He writes a word here in the original language that that, uh, was used in the first century to to describe the exchanging of coins, like in a business transaction. However, in this context where he uses the word, it means the restoration of a relationship back to what it originally should have been. So primarily, this passage is talking about Christ followers are supposed to help unbelievers get reconciled to God by sharing the message of reconciliation. That is, salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And when an unbeliever repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, God grants forgiveness and eternal life, and restores the relationship. Now, that's key, because that's the gospel. That is key when we talk about biblical peacemaking. Notice, though, if there is no repentance for sin, God does not grant forgiveness. That's also important. Simply put, what Paul is saying here is that reconciled people reconcile people by sharing Christ with them. But secondarily, I think this passage implies that believers should be reconcilers with each other. And here's why. It will be more difficult for the church to reconcile unbelievers to God if believers aren't reconciled with each other. Make sense? It's okay, you can just nod your head. And when believers repent of sin to each other and transact forgiveness between each other, they reenact the gospel of what the Lord does. When we repent, he forgives us. 
Simply put, reconciled people reconcile with people by practicing biblical peacemaking. So therefore, just as God took the initiative by lovingly showing us our sin so we could be reconciled to him, we too should take the initiative by lovingly showing others their sin so they can be reconciled to us. That is the gospel reenacted. Now, making peace also, and here's letters A and B on your outline, just a couple other reasons it needs to be a priority, and I'm shocked it's not in more churches, is that making peace also prevents more conflict from happening. In Proverbs 18, 19, it says, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and a quarrel, excuse me, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. The proverb has this profound insight that we probably have all witnessed but haven't connected to Scripture. So here's what Solomon is saying, and that is when we hurt someone with our words or our actions, they begin to guard their hearts like the bars on a castle. And they become critical of us and they begin to look over the wall at us with bitterness the longer and longer it goes without being dealt with. The offense then becomes a stumbling block in the relationship because there's this, there's this wall or like bars up between you and them. And it leads to more conflict and more misunderstandings until it's dealt with. And so Solomon's great wisdom, Proverbs 18, 19 in essence, is saying we need to resolve it quickly because if we don't, it'll lead to more conflict. Next, making peace also, letter B, protects the church from the adversary. It protects the church from the adversary. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26-27, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Now, some translations render opportunity as a foothold, which would be appropriate as well. Paul was using a word picture of rock climbing to tell the Ephesians they needed to resolve conflict quickly in their church or else they would be giving the devil a foot in the door. In other words, being complacent about resolving conflict makes us complicit when the evil one breaks into our relationships. So we need to make it a priority, and it needs to be urgent. Church conflict's inevitable. It's going to happen. But the joy of making peace is possible. Next, if you would turn to the next key passage in biblical peacemaking is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. So if you would turn back there to the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It was Jesus' longest sermon where he addresses a number of topics, one of which was anger and relational conflict. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 23-24, So if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled 
to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. So how can we prevent conflict from harming the church? Well, here's number two on your outline. By confessing sin quickly. By confessing sin quickly. You see, 2 Corinthians 5 showed us how important biblical peacemaking is for our witness. Well, Matthew 5 shows us how important it is for our worship. Jesus is saying that if we realize through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we've sinned against someone Monday through Saturday... We should go apologize and request their forgiveness before Sunday comes. And just so there's no confusion about where reconciliation should be on our priority list for the week, the Lord says, leave your gift at the altar. And first, be reconciled. First, not second, not third, not fifth. First, be reconciled. Jesus is saying, I don't want your offerings. Don't bring your worship if you have not made an attempt to at least seek forgiveness from the person that you hurt. So just as we would drop whatever we were doing, if we found out a loved one was in critical condition at the hospital, Jesus says we should drop what we're doing and attempt to reconcile with the person we sinned against before our relationship with them falls into critical condition. This is another reason why maintaining our walk with the Lord is so important, because doing so keeps us sensitive to the Spirit's promptings that, hey, you shouldn't have said that. Hey, that, that sarcastic joke you made, yeah, that hurt them. You need to go back and apologize for that. Hey, you shouldn't have yelled at your spouse like that so on and so forth. So, how can we prevent conflict from harming the church? By confessing sin quickly. In other words, another way I would say it is by not waiting for someone to point it out to us. By being quick to go deal with it instead because we realize we were wrong. And to go say, hey, I'm sorry. And personally, I can tell you from experience that sometimes... There is no offense. I just thought there was, and I've, I've, I've called someone, or I've gone back to them and said, hey, you know, I, I made a joke here. I was trying to be funny. It was a bad joke. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I should not have said that. I'm trying to get better at getting rid of sarcasm. And the person will go, what? I didn't even hear what you said. I wasn't listening to you. Or, no. <laughs> No, I, or they, I didn't take it that way. You know, but it's still good to check. And what I've learned over the years is that by just having the humility to go back and ask and say, hey, I just want to make sure, even if they don't think you wronged them, they really appreciate that you took the time to come back and check. It's still worth it. So... Uh, don't wait for somebody to bring it to you. I made that mistake too many times early in my ministry, and I don't want to see you do the same. Next, if you would, flip to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. So flip back a couple pages, hang a right, and we're going to Matthew 18. And this is the third 
main, it's like in one of the top three passages on biblical peacemaking. How to resolve conflict in relationships. So this applies between siblings, between spouses, church members, and so on. So, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here's number three in your outline. How do we go about resolving conflict in the church? Well, number three, by confronting sin lovingly. By confronting sin lovingly. Realizing that conflict is inevitable between sinners, even sinners that have been saved by grace, Jesus lays out a process here for reconciling a broken relationship. Because he doesn't want us, it is definitely not his will for us to just fester and fester and get more and more bitter over time because somebody did something or didn't do something that upset us that was sinful and not deal with it. He does not want that to happen because that's how the world deals with conflict. They just bury it, avoid it, don't deal with it. And then it could be six months later and all of a sudden you find out Somebody was mad at you. Whoa, where did that come from, man? I didn't know you felt that way. Well, all the way back there, there. I don't even remember what happened that day. That's what happens between unbelievers. And so the Lord does not want his people to act that way. So before you go confronting sin lovingly, though, you need to know and discern a couple things. So here's step one, and get ready to fill some blanks in. I'm going to go quickly through these. You need to discern, is it really worth confronting? See, the Lord, he doesn't want us getting our confrontation um, anti-sin guns out and to go blazing. Man, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. Instead, he sets some fences around this in verse 15. Notice he says, if, so it's conditional, your brother, which is Actually, in the original text, it's gender neutral, so it would be your brother or sister in Christ. Sins against you. They have to sin. That means the perceived offense has to violate the word of God. It means you need to be able to find chapter and verse to show why they did or what they did was actually wrong in the Lord's eyes. And this is the Lord trying to protect all of us, I think, from those in the church or in our lives that are petty and have critical spirits and will just nitpick away at things. He doesn't want us destroying relationships by just picking at each other over little stuff. Lying is a sin, for example, but misunderstanding your question is not. Being rude or inconsiderate is a sin, but... Forgetting to talk to you after the worship service is not. Um, Having a different opinion on a a topic in the news is not a sin. 
So if you determine that you were sinned against, or you're beginning to think that, you still need to discern whether it's worth confronting or not, or whether you should let love cover it by asking yourself these questions. Here's a couple quick questions under step one. Will this hinder your relationship moving forward with them? So is the relationship you have with this person going to stop progressing or backslide or cease to exist because of the perceived offense? Has it changed your relationship or damaged it? If so, put a check on the side of the column that says, yes, I need to talk to them about it. Next, is there a pattern here? Is this a one-time thing? Or is it a pattern where you're seeing something they keep doing over and over again and it's, it, it keeps recurring? It could be that the Lord wants to use you to bring the sin to their attention and they may not realize they're doing it. Next, if left alone, will this hurt the witness of the individual or the church? So if the perceived offense is big enough, and it's happening enough, like a pattern, that it could hurt the witness of the church, then your fear of confrontation and the offender's feelings have to take a back seat. The Lord's church and her reputation have to come first. Now, if the answer to these questions is no, then it's a minor thing. You let it go. We let love cover it, and you try and avoid having a critical spirit. On the other hand, if the answer to these three questions is yes, then you proceed to step two. Step two is this. Go speak to the person privately. That's what Jesus says in verse 15. Go show him his fault between you and him alone. Why? Because tolerating... Sin in someone's life just to preserve the relationship is just as unloving as committing sin against them in the Lord's eyes. Well, why, why, do you, why, why should you do it privately? So that you don't embarrass them or yourself. You see, you have to leave room for the possibility that you were wrong. I'm never wrong. Anytime I see sin, I know what it is, and it's exactly sin. Eh, Be careful there. You see, because what if you just misunderstood them? Or what if you only heard part of the conversation, and you didn't hear everything in context, and you just jumped to a conclusion based on one sentence in a long discussion, because you walked in the room late? For example, uh, take the man who asked his neighbor to help him move a couch that had become stuck in his doorway. So they both pushed and pulled until they were exhausted, but the couch wouldn't budge. Finally, the couch owner said, Oh, forget it, man, this couch. I've had it. We'll never get it into my apartment. And that's when the neighbor looked at him quizzically and said, I thought you were wanting to take it out. <laughs> See? Misunderstandings happen because we're sinners. We don't hear. We're not God. We don't hear everything perfectly. We don't know everything. We miss things. So after sharing your perception directly, honestly, and lovingly, listen patiently. And if they repent, grant forgiveness and celebrate that you've acted out the gospel in your relationship. The Lord elaborates on this a little bit more in Luke chapter 17. You might want to jot this reference down. Luke 17, it kind of adds more meat 
to the bone of what he's saying in Matthew 18, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There's a lot in that that I I don't have time to unpack, but notice the conditional ifs there. Forgiveness is granted if there's repentance, and there is no limit to how often we should forgive them. Next, uh, well, church conflict is inevitable, but the joy of making peace is possible. Here's step three. If they refuse to repent, get help from fellow believers. That's what Jesus says next here in verse 16. Get help from fellow believers. He says, if they don't repent, take one or two others with you. Most likely, Jesus was referring to one or two people who could witness the follow-up attempt to reconcile. A neutral party who cares for both of you would be a good choice here. You know, like, don't take your spouse who would be biased towards you. Don't, uh, don't take your lawyer who's being paid by you. Say, hey, I just, I just brought in a third party to help us reconcile. Meet my attorney, Joe. Who am I paying $500 an hour? He's going to give his honest, unbiased, objective opinion here. So a neutral party that's godly and puts the church first. Someone who is for the church and for both of you. This is what Paul did in Philippians 4.3, remember? When he assigned, who I think is Timothy, the true companion, to be the mediator to help uh, Yodia and Sintuhe to uh, resolve their differences, he got another believer involved. Next, step four. If they still refuse to repent, get help from church leaders. Get help from church leaders. Jesus says in verse 17, tell it to the church. Sadly, this verse has been misinterpreted, and I have, I've had to counsel people in the past who have left churches with the shrapnel still in their heart from seeing this verse misapplied. And I just, as a pastor, it just makes me want to go over to some other churches and knock some heads together. What are you doing? This is not, that's not what Jesus meant. So if you use wisdom and you cross-reference other scriptures, what Jesus was trying to say is get help from a pastor or an elder. Get help from somebody who has spiritual authority to bring about a resolution. He's not saying embarrass them in front of the whole church. Shame them. Call them out in public. That's not what Jesus meant. But sadly, there are some churches that do that. There are rare exceptions where the sin has to be announced publicly, but they are rare, and elders normally decide that if, say, for example, it's somebody on staff who committed a public sin. Let's say, for example, it's a youth pastor who um, sexually abused some children. That's a situation where you have to come out publicly and announce that and announce what steps are being taken to to reconcile the situation and make it right with the Lord. But again, most of the time, 
the majority of the disagreements, things don't need to be brought out in public. And again, there's great resources to help elders discern that on when and when not to do it. Next, step five, if they still refuse to repent, treat them as an unbeliever. That's what Jesus means when he says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. He's referring to putting some distance between ourselves and the unrepentant friend like they are an unbeliever. I think there's a dual meaning here. I think he means treat them like someone who is not born again because they're acting like someone who's not born again because they've, they've ignored steps one through four. But I also think he means if they are born again, they are saved, treat them like you would an unbeliever by putting some distance between you and them so that they feel the pressure to make the relationship right. So, they, so in essence, you show them you can't treat people like that and still have the benefits of the relationship. So, so this, this final step is designed to put pressure on them, to isolate them, sort of like putting a child on time out, say, getting them away from the rest of the family, saying, no, 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 no. If you're going to pout and throw temper tantrums like that, you're going to be in your room. You're not going to be out here with the rest of the family while we watch a movie. Now, when you get yourself under control, and when you are ready to come back and say you're sorry, you can come out of your room, come downstairs, and you can rejoin the family and finish the movie. It's that kind of principle. So, if they still refuse to repent, treat them as an unbeliever. Well, how do we apply these verses? There is a lot of application, I think, already in what we've looked at, but there are two in particular I wanted to surface that I think are important. Uh, Number one, choose to fear God more than men. This is important because as I, as I, Those of you that have been part of Vanguard since we started, you've heard me teach on biblical peacemaking a few times. And whenever it comes up in the scriptures and series, I address it. But as I was thinking about this week and praying about this passage, going, Lord, what what can I say that's fresh? I don't want to say the same thing over and over again. One of the things that the Lord brought to my mind is surfacing the root cause behind avoiding conflict resolution. And I think it's this. If we strip away all the excuses and all the reasons that people give for not resolving conflict biblically, I think the root issue deep down in their hearts is that they fear man more than God. They fear man more than God. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a... Reference to like a trap, a hunter's trap that would clamp down on a, on a bear's leg or some other animal in the wilderness. It's a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, the fear of man causes us to lie. It causes us to fear having difficult conversations that are uncomfortable causes us to fear people getting upset at us or to fear losing the relationship if we try to resolve conflict. That's fear of man. However, as Oswald Chambers once said, when you fear God, 
you fear nothing else. When you're thinking and you've reorientated your mind and your heart around, I want to please the Lord no matter what, and I don't care what happens to me, then you'll do whatever it takes, no matter the cost. Even if it means upsetting someone or seeing that relationship come to an end. So choose to fear God more than man. And secondly, second application, do your part and lead the results with the Lord. Do your part and lead the results with the Lord. Romans 12, 18, that's another, I want to encourage you to write that verse down too. That's another top five passage on biblical peacemaking that you should be familiar with. Romans 12, 18, it's where Paul says to the church in Rome, who they're having conflict too, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 18 means the Lord is watching to make sure we've done our part and he'll take care of them if they don't do their part. That's why in verses 19 and 20, Paul says in Romans 12, leave, leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So he's preempting, hey, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If they won't do their part to reconcile the relationship, you don't get to go get revenge on them. You don't get to take an ad out on the paper and the internet that blasts for the world to see what they did to wrong you, okay? Paul says, no, 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 no. Let the Lord deal with it. It doesn't matter if the conflict was 90% their fault and only 10% yours. You're still responsible for the 10% of sin that you contributed to the problem. You will stand before the Lord and give an account for the 10% you did if you don't ask for forgiveness and own it. And you should just be aware, they are thinking you're 90% at fault, and they're only 10%. Just be aware of that. And don't look at your spouse right now. Now, most of the time when we pray, and we use God's word for wisdom, uh, and we step out in faith to make peace with someone, there is joy, and there is uh, celebration and a healthier relationship waiting on the other side of the hard conversation. And I can testify that has happened many times for me, but not always. It's not a guarantee. Uh, Romans 12, 18 is important for you to know because when Paul writes, if possible, if possible, if possible, he is acknowledging there will be times when the other person is not willing to talk, not willing to repent, or will only reconcile with you if truth is compromised. And the Lord never expects us to reconcile a relationship at the expense of truth. This is why I shared a couple weeks ago J.C. Ryle's insight on this when I talked about unity a few weeks ago. Uh, unity is important. However, J.C. Ryle says wisely, peace without truth is false peace. Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Unity, which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth, is worth nothing. 
It is not unity that pleases God. Thus, the metric for success in peacemaking is not reconciliation, because you can't make that happen. Instead, the metric for success is simply your obedience. You doing your part and leaving the rest with the Lord. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Well, you guys have done a great job taking notes, and I know I've given you a lot of content today. I appreciate you bearing with me. I did my best to trim the sermon down as much as I could, but then I was, uh, I can't take that out because my... I don't know what else to take out, so I appreciate you doing that. Finally, I just wanted to close by mentioning uh, several years ago, there was a Peanuts cartoon in which Lucy says to Snoopy, uh, there are times when you really bug me, she says, but I must admit there are also times when I feel like giving you a hug. And Snoopy then replies, well, that's the way I am, buggable and huggable. (laughs) Isn't that also true of all of us. We bug each other. But there are also things that we all do or qualities we all possess that make us huggable. We all have different personalities, gifts, talents, preferences. This may lead to disagreements, but it doesn't mean we have to be disagreeable. Nor does it mean we have to agree on everything outside of the truth of God's word. So, church conflict is inevitable, but the joy of making peace is possible if we'll step out in faith and obey God's word. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize with a topic like this, there are wounds that sometimes get reopened. In fact, just about all of us have scars on our heart and strong emotions that come to the surface when we talk about people who have hurt us, sinned against us, or maybe people that we've hurt who won't forgive us even though we've tried and tried to apologize. And so, Father, I just, I just want to ask, please, that you would work in the various lives represented here today, that you would, please, Lord, would you do some miracles and bring about some reconciliation in some relationships? It could be with uh, a family member. It could be with uh, another believer or maybe an unbeliever. Lord, please, would you give us the wisdom and the faith to obey what your word says and to trust you with the results, whatever they may be. Help us, Lord, to trust you. So if that means we lose a relationship Help us to remember that we still have you. We still pleased you. Or, or Lord, if it means we have to endure someone's emotional wrath 
first before we can get to resolution in transacting forgiveness. Please, Lord, would you, would you grant the grace and the strength to endure that? And Lord, uh, finally, as a church, we, we want to be the kind of church that does relationships and resolves conflict differently so that those who come in and they visit us or they watch us from the outside, they can say, wow, there is something really different about you guys. And I want to know what it is. What, what is it? Help us, Lord, to be different than the world when it comes to how we do relationships and how we resolve conflict. We love you, Lord, and we thank you most of all that you took the initiative to lovingly show us our sin so we could repent and ask for your forgiveness and receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, I thank you for those who have been able to do that. And if there is anyone here today or listening online who has not done that yet, please, would you show Jesus to them? Would you work in their hearts and bring them to faith in Christ so they can be blessed by receiving forgiveness after admitting their sin and repenting of it and experience the joy and the abundant blessings of knowing you and having peace with you. We love you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.